Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. The last two weeks, one of the main texts that I've referred to has been Romans 8.32. It says this, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And I want to look at that again today, and once again put it into context even more than I did last Sunday. For those of you who missed Wednesday night, I urge you uh, to go find and listen to Jeff Canfield's excellent message on the authority of the believer. How many of you were here for that? Was that something? I mean, it was one of the most encouraging and challenging messages I have heard in a long time. Uh, and he reminded us of our position, our rank, our authority as the redeemed, as the saved, as the children of God, and how little we have to fear from the enemy. This was something probably everybody came into that service knowing. And yet you walked out knowing more. You walked out recharged, recommitted to this idea that Satan is where? Under our feet. Uh, so when we talk about you know, how we have nothing to fear from the enemy, I think sometimes the struggle is, and I don't want to sound all... Uh, Oh, I don't want to go all psychological or anything, and I'm not going to ignore the Word of God here, trust me. But we find ourselves struggling with the enemy within. This is something that's really worth paying attention to because sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to even bother differentiating this. Is the devil attacking me? Am I going through this struggle now because I'm being tempted by the devil or attacked by the devil, or am I dealing with my flesh? Because there is a difference. It's true that when the devil is working on us, he's working on our flesh. That's what he reaches out to. That's what he appeals to. But how many of you know that when you cave into the flesh, it's not most of the time because there is a devil whispering in your ear? We've trained ourselves to give into the flesh, to yield to the flesh. And we have to train ourselves not to do that. said this many times before, and I learned this from Rama, uh, from, from Patsy Caminetti at Rama. She's the one who pointed this out, that, uh, you know, the devil has limited resources. He can't be everywhere at once. We don't know how many devils there are, but they can't... Uh, uh, his resources are limited, unlike God's. He can hear all of our, God can hear all of our prayers at the same time. He can answer all of our prayers abundantly at the same time. The devil has limited resources, and so it's really not economical for him. It's not uh, efficient for him to assign a devil to you uh, to keep you from quitting smoking or, or to uh, quit porn uh, or, or, or to, to stay uh, hooked on pornography or anything like that. What he does, that's why addictions are one of his favorite tools because they're sort of like a set it and forget it. They're self-perpetuating. He doesn't need to continue to tempt you to do something he's already gotten you addicted to. Then he can move on to somebody else. So addictions are particularly uh, 
effective weapons, but just because you have an addiction doesn't mean you have a demon. Might have got you started, all right? Anyway, that's, that's almost a whole nother sermon, but we are going to kind of come back around to the spiritual aspect of this. I mean, the, in terms of the demonic activity, just a little bit today. Uh, I want you to understand that, and this is a little bit mysterious, but the Bible at the same time is very clear on this. Sin is in the blood, right? God said that life is in the blood, and in the day you sin, you will die. Death goes into our blood because sin is carried in the blood, and that is why Adam and Eve, when they sinned, sin wasn't in their blood. They, their sin was original, but they were corrupted, and death entered the human race in the first two humans, and that death has been passed on in the blood to you and me. It's also made very clear that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, of sins. God made that clear on the day Adam and Eve sinned. Remember, they tried to cover their sin, cover their nakedness with fig leaves sewed together. And what did God do? He killed animals and clothed them with that skin because blood had to be shed. The connection between blood and life uh, was reiterated in the story of Cain and Abel. Abel was a keeper of flocks. Uh, Cain um, was a farmer into the produce scene. And they, on the day they, they came to before the Lord with an offering, uh, Abel brought some of the best of his flock and Cain brought some of the produce of the ground. Now there's a couple things you need to notice about this story. You've seen this and you've heard this. The, one is, first of all, remember this. There was no law at this time. As far as bringing a sacrifice, the Mosaic law was long way from coming yet. There was still something they understood, something that had maybe uh, been... Uh, hinted at or spelled out by God, but it wasn't written down. When you bring an offering, it must be this, and you must bring it this way. They just knew that there was a time to come and bring an offering. And there's pretty clear language here. Cain brought some produce. Abel brought the best of his flocks. Also, Abel's offering involved the shedding of blood. Nothing had been spelled out yet. At least nothing, again, not in terms of the law. But God had made it clear that without the shedding of blood, there was no remission of sins. At the very least, Cain, I believe, should have traded some of his produce for some of Abel's flocks and brought that offering before the Lord. But there was also the, the very casual attitude. Ah, I'm a, this is what I have. I'm a farmer, I have produce, this is what I'm going to bring, but it just said he brought some. It didn't say he brought the best. And you know, this, this idea of, of you know, giving the best of your produce, this is, this is at least a big part of what the, what the Bible refers to as a grain offering, a, a heave offering, a wave offering. Uh, when, the, when the crops began to produce fruit or grain, they would take the very first of that in what amounts I don't know the first and the best, and they would wave it before the Lord, take a sheaf of grain and wave it before the Lord and burn it, offer it to the Lord. And this was a way of expressing their faith that God was going to cause enough of an increase 
that they could afford to give the first and best. What if you gave the first and best and then there's a hailstorm or a flood or something that wipes out your crop? They were trusting God to be their source. I do that every year. I don't make a big ceremony out of it. I don't know if Beth's ever done it with me, but the first really good tomato that comes on in my garden, I go out there and I hold it up in the air and say, God, I dedicate this garden to you, and then I smash that tomato in my compost heap, knowing that there's going to be better tomatoes in the future. But I really do find myself more and more in agreement with those who say that the proper course of action for Cain would have been to purchase a clean animal from Abel and bring that, bring a blood sacrifice. Whatever. Because God did, years later, formally introduce the sacrifice system as part of the law. And a big part of that. Why? Why was it such a bloody mess? Why was it such a bloody system? Because a big, big part of that was to remind Israel constantly of what sin costs. The seriousness of their sin. And the best way to remind them of it was all the blood that had to be shed to cover it up year by year. And the sacrifice system was just part of the law. Hundreds of ordinances, rules, and punishments for disobeying them. And as I have preached over the years, the main point of the law was to show just how far man, because of sin, had fallen from God's ideal. Here's a question, though. Why was it so hard for man to obey? I promise you it wasn't just because of the sheer number of laws. It was because their nature was so corrupt that the law was working against their natural inclinations. Why? Because sin is in the blood. Sin is in the DNA. People today, and this is one of the more common, uh, it's probably the, if, you, if you're, I don't know if you, I'm not as constantly into it as I used to be, but if I'm uh, flipping through, if, I, you know, if I'm driving, I'll be on some YouTube uh, channel that'll just bring up one short video after another. And because of what I've listened to, a lot of these things that pop up for me are apologetics videos, or maybe pieces from a debate between an atheist and a, and a Christian. And uh, certainly the oldest question, the, probably the most popular apologetics question and challenge of all time is, and you know, some of you could probably already quote it. If God is all-powerful and all-good, then why is there evil and suffering in the world? And you can, there's other different permutations of that question, but if there's evil and suffering in the world, it must be because God is not all-good, because why would an all-good God produce evil? Or he's not all-powerful, because if he's a good God, why wouldn't he stop evil? And I'm not going to answer that today. I've answered it before. It's not as deep a question as you think it is. God is all good and all powerful, and he loves us, and he has elevated us to a point where we have choice, we have free will, we can make our own decisions. There's the short version. That's not a complete answer. But uh, more and more of the questions that pop up are challenging to the goodness of God as presented in Scripture. And they'll say things like, how can you say God is good? When right there in his law, his perfect law, there are rules for how to treat your slaves. How can a good God endorse slavery? Uh, the treatment of our fellow man and other questions like this. It's like this, it's just so primitive. Even if it seemed good back then, how can we say that God is good now, knowing what we know about human rights and this and that? Well, 
I want you to understand that, number one, God never changes. Just as Jesus stepped into this world in time and space, into a particular political situation, into a particular culture, God himself spoke into a corrupt and sinful culture. And he set limits. Just like Jesus, God condescended when he gave the law to meet mankind where he was. We don't appreciate just how corrupt and violent uh, the world was. We see when we read the Old Testament, we see almost exclusively, but I'm thankful that not just exclusively, or not entirely exclusively, we see God's dealing with Israel. But we also know, that, for instance, the land that God was giving them was inhabited by people whose sin had finally, over hundreds of years, cried out for judgment. What were some of the hallmarks of these religions? They were burning their kids alive as offerings. They were utterly corrupt, violent. It would be a horror movie if you made, if you made a, a, a movie or wrote a book about just how these other cultures were. And God gave his people the law and brought them in to destroy these other nations after giving them hundreds of years to come to their senses, to repent. Historians, now this isn't across the board, but more and more historians, secular historians, atheist historians, uh, without embracing Christianity, have over the years had to acknowledge that Christianity, they might say Christendom, has been an overall benefit for humanity to the world. The very reason that we find certain cultural practices abhorrent in the first place is because of the influence Christianity has had on the human population for the last 2,000 years. Christianity, without people, again, even without everybody in a culture embracing it, Christianity has permeated so much of the culture, uh, the world, and has made us, as a species, more humane. Abolishing slavery, uh, women's rights, education, public works, medicine, all these and many, many more human endeavors have their roots in biblical Christianity. They are an expected part of developed society because of what the church has done wherever it has landed. The world that Jesus stepped into was not so gentle. It wasn't as couth as the world we live in. Listen, this, this is a, a balancing act because when we look at Scripture and we look at expectations, we look at morals, we look at beliefs, we look at doctrine, and we can see, wow, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. People are moving further and further from God, and it is. Evil continues to grow. Darkness continues to grow. And yet, if you look at simple quality of life issues, there are far, far fewer people percentage-wise living in what uh, could de be defined as true poverty. Far fewer people dying of diseases. Far fewer people starving. Is, are people starving in the world? Yes. Are people still dying of diseases? Yes. But the world at large is so, is a so much better place to live than it was 100 years ago, let alone 500 years ago. This is, this is uh, 
Again, an atheist would readily agree with this. Ah, the, the world is improving. We are making the world a better place. And as long as you ignore sin, death, hell, heaven, eternity, all the important issues of life, all that is true. If you, have to live, if you have to live on earth, now is the best time to ever live on earth because of all the things that are available to us. Jesus didn't step into this world. He stepped into that world. And it was so, because of the world he stepped into, even today we look at Jesus' teachings and we, we know that he was here for more than his teachings. But one of the things, one of the ways you'd have to describe Jesus' teachings uh, uh, is countercultural, right? Jesus' teachings go against our culture. They went even more against his culture. That's what I want you to see. Well, you know, when, when, when we read in the Old Testament, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, you have to understand even when that was written, when that was given as a law, it wasn't saying, make sure if somebody does something to you, you do it back to them. It was saying, I know your natural inclination when somebody pokes you in the eye is to kill them. You only exact revenge that is equal to your offense. It's like the Godfather. Remember? When, uh, right at the very beginning, the, the funeral director, what's his name? Shout it out. Now, the, uh, the undertaker comes and says, basically, I, uh, these guys uh, beat up my daughter, and so I want you to kill them. And he says, you're asking me to commit murder for money. He says, no, no, I just want justice. He says, that's not justice. Your daughter is still alive. That's wisdom there, right out of the Bible. And that's, all, that's what eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, mate. You don't take any more than an eye if you, if you lose your eye. So even that. But what did Jesus say coming into the violent world that he lived in? Turn the other cheek. Don't repay evil for evil, but repay evil with good. Now that is too much for people in our enlightened, gentle, educated society today. I promise you it was 10 times harder to hear back then. So much of his preaching and teaching in his day reminds us of how far we have fallen from God's created ideal. So much of what we believe about God's goodness is predicated on the finished work of the cross, which wasn't finished yet when Jesus was preaching it. It was so revolutionary because mankind is utterly corrupt because what? This blood-borne pathogen called sin. Now again... On one hand, we can look around and say, even the parts of the world that haven't embraced Christianity are walking in a more enlightened society because of Christianity. Things are measurably getting better. And we think, is this the direction we're going? And then, every day or so, seems like there's another mass shooting to remind us of just how corrupt and evil this world is in the middle of the most prosperous moment in history. And this is worldwide taken in the aggregate. The devil is still working to make sure we remember there's no place you can go and be truly safe. And God's solution to this problem of evil 
was not to send Jesus to teach us how to behave and treat one another. It was to take all of that wretchedness and corruption, the corruption of our very nature, and place it on Jesus and judge it, punish it, kill it at the cross. And what he offers on the basis of that finished work is not the opportunity to redeem ourselves, but redemption itself. Not the chance for a better life, but a new life, resurrection life, a new birth. So far, so good, right? This, we are not breaking any new ground here. But if at the new birth we have become, as Peter writes, partakers of the divine nature, why then do we still struggle with sin? Paul wrote about this in his letter to the Roman Christians in chapter 7, and you can turn there if you want, Romans chapter 7, and we'll begin in verse 21 here in a second. He wrestles with this maddening contradiction. Uh, I'm going to read this part, but this is some of the more famous stuff. He said, I make up my mind to do the right thing because I can see it's the right thing. It's not a matter of knowledge. It's not a matter of recognizing the law for how good it is. I know it's the right thing to do, so I decide to do it. And guess what? I can't. Same way, I'll see something is wrong and say, I will not do that. And that's exactly what I find myself drawn to. In Romans 7, beginning in verse 21, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, talking about his flesh, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Man, you read through chapter 7, you might be convinced that you're not saved unless you are transformed, transformed into someone who keeps the law perfectly. But he's writing about two different things. One is, uh, as a believer in the law and who recognizes its goodness but still can't keep it because the sin nature still prevails, this could very well, and I think does. I don't think it's an either-or here. There's clearly an, uh, a reference here to unregenerate man. That Paul, even as a Jew, before he came to Christ, knew, what the law, knew that the law was good. And as a very religious and observant Jew, he tried hard to keep it. And now is being honest to be able to look back and say, I couldn't. I knew the law better than most of you. I knew the law better than most of my peers. And I knew it was good and I wanted to do, and I couldn't. Why? Because he, he didn't have the new birth. But then when you read there in verse 22 uh, about talking about the inward man, I believe that can and does refer to a believer in Christ and the struggle now against the flesh. It's kind of like this, and forgive me because I'm not a medical professional, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a biologist, uh, so you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but say you have an infected toe. Or, or any sort of sore, a bite, a wound on your, your arm or your leg or something. And, uh, you know, you rub a little Neosporin on there and bandage it, and it's not getting any better. So you go to the doctor. What's he going to do, probably? He's going to give you a shot of an antibiotic, and then he's going to probably prescribe 
a 10-day course of oral antibiotics or something like that. In uh, dire cases, they will administer antibiotics intravenously. Why? Where are they putting this? Does he give you a shot in your wound? Where does this antibiotic go? It goes in your butt, goes in your arm. He just gets it. Where is it going to wind up? In your bloodstream, right? And your blood will deliver this medicine to the part of your body that needs it to fight that infection. This is not the whole picture, but imagine the new birth as a blood transfusion. Sin is in the blood. Death is in the blood. At the new birth, we get new blood. Meanwhile, sin still infects our members, our flesh, our body. Little by little, the blood will make us healthier, freer from the corruption of sin. It will cleanse us. But as long as we are in this body, we are going to be susceptible to being wounded again. And if we're not careful how we respond, that wound can become infected. We are always going to be contending with this flesh. We have been given the first fruits of the redemption of our body. Healing. Healing is for this body. I believe healing is, is, is physical healing is, is one of the things that we're not going to see in heaven because we are not going to be susceptible to injury or sickness. But now we are. This flesh is always going to be potentially responsive to temptation. And once we yield to temptation, we don't need to be tempted again. We just keep feeding our flesh. It doesn't unsave us, but we can't walk in that victory. And we cannot, we will never, the beautiful thing about the resurrection is our bodies are changed at that moment. And to what does the Bible say? From corruptible to incorruptible. The devil loves to take advantage of those moments when we yield to the flesh. And when we talk about, you know, your identity is not as a sinner. Your identity is a child of God. You're forgiven. But we talk about being sinners that's honest in one sense is that we all continue to sin from time to time at least. Why? And that's because sin, the stain of sin, even though I wouldn't consider it part of my DNA anymore, it's still in my flesh. That's where sin is now. Not in my blood, it's in my flesh. But the devil will love to use even God's word to condemn you. If he can't keep you from reading it, He's going to use it against you. But Paul writes this in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. So just turn the page if you're still there in Romans. Romans 8, verse 31. This should sound familiar to you. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? 
Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Listen to this. I know we read it last week, but listen to this in light of what we just have been talking about. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, and who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sakes we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice, he's not saying, hey, Jesus died for your sins, so anything goes. He's saying, you still have the stain of of, uh, sin nature in you, so you are still going to have to contend with fleshly temptations, but that is not what makes you saved or unsaved, because it is Christ who died. Who is he that condemns? And on what basis is he condemning you? You sinned. Sin brings death. You have to die. And our response is, I already died in Christ. No one can bring an accusation against me because whatever sin I was guilty of has been paid for. And then back to this principle that separates God from us in a remarkable way. I know I've hit it the last two weeks, but it was hearing Jeff's message Wednesday night that uh, I believe God used to reinforce to me that we have to get this one nailed down if we are going to start walking in victory and seeing the things that we are believing for. Uh, Jeff brought that up too. It's like, we know these things. When are we going to start seeing the healings that we say we're believing for? When are we going to start walking in manifest victory in every area of our life? This is one that God has specifically promised. It's easy to get weary. And when you're fighting a battle on multiple fronts, I mentioned to you last week, I think it was last week, that Beth and I were fighting a number of things that, that, that we'd come up against some stuff. And it wasn't like any one of these things was, was huge. It's just they all seem to be happening at once. Uh, I don't know. Has anybody in here, I don't think, seems like I would know it if you had. But did anybody in here ever go to ranger school? Army, U.S. Army Ranger School? I did not. Uh, boy, I wanted to wear that Ranger tab, but I didn't want it bad enough to go to Ranger School. If you've read the stories or spoken to somebody who's been there, it's, it is perhaps the most difficult, I think it's 63 days now or something like that. It's a small unit leaders course. I'm not saying it's harder than uh, BUDS for SEAL Team or something like that. It's a different kind of thing. But typically, uh, guys that go through this class, um, and I don't know what the graduation rate is, but it's, it's less than 50%. But by the time you finish this school, typically you've lost somewhere between 25 and 30 pounds. Uh, they try to recreate the stressors on your, uh, you know, they, they understand they're training you for combat, training you for some very difficult, uh, very, uh, s- some situations that are going to test you in so many ways and put you in danger. Well, they can't actually start shooting. Ah, we're going to shoot half of you. That way the rest of you will be really stressed out. They can't literally recreate the danger, but they can recreate the stress by robbing you of sleep and food. And that's what they do. 
you average two hours of sleep a day. Uh, and uh, I think they give you, I don't know, 1,000, 1,500 calories, maybe 2,000, but you are on the move constantly. And those two hours of sleep, by the way, not necessarily two consecutive hours, might be 20 minutes at a time. You hear these stories about these guys, you know, getting toward the end of the course and they're going up to a tree trying to put a quarter in it because they're trying to make a phone call or buy a pop or something like that, doing these crazy things. But between the loss of sleep, the lack of food, and the physical stressors, their bodies get so run down that a mosquito bite can send them to the hospital. Just a mosquito bite can swell up to the size of a baseball. Their bodies are just, they have been so beat up on so many levels. There's the psychological stress. I know a guy who got, who failed ranger school, got kicked out, sent home two days before graduation. Can you imagine making it 61 days out of 63 and then saying you didn't make it? If you want that tab, you're going to have to start all over. He told me that and I said, did you just cry? I would have just broken down. He said, when I think about it now, I cry. All I could think of at that moment was, I'm going home. Getting out of here. I only bring that up. It's fun to talk about Ranger School. But I bring it up because this is what it can be like. And we don't even see it coming. We didn't volunteer to go through this kind of hell. We signed up to be ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We signed up to get saved and go to heaven. And then a struggle comes along. And you're like, I got this. I got this. Whoa, here comes another one. And next thing you know, you're, you're juggling uh, five baseballs at once. And then suddenly they're bowling balls. And things get heavier and heavier. And then one little thing can come up and hit you. And you drop the balls. Something happens. And all anybody else can see is that little thing caused them to stumble, caused them to fall. And you have no idea about the other five balls they were keeping in the air. I'm going way off script here. Not way off script. But do keep that in mind. We are, as a body, supposed to correct one another, hold each other accountable to righteousness. But before you wade into somebody's life and attacking them for something that, ah, you should have done this better. Maybe start with something going on in your life that I can pray for you about. And be vulnerable. Started to tell you a story that I'm not going to tell you. Probably shouldn't have said anything about it. Anyway. When things pile up, it can be a little thing that causes you to stumble. And sometimes stumble is, oh gosh, I just fell apart and I had a breakdown. Sometimes stumble is, it, you feel like it gives you an excuse to sin. You just weren't strong in this area because you had been uh, taking a pounding in other areas. And here is the real danger. I think this is the time I'm going to bring this up. I'm going to bring it up, even though it was a little bit later. And I, th I still have time to do this other part, but I just don't want to make sure I get, I get this in here. When you find yourself, find things piled up on you, you're feeling the weight of the world, and maybe I'm the only one who's done this. What you find yourself doing is going into survival mode. 
if I can just get through this day, or more often for me, it's like, if I can just get to the weekend. Maybe if I can just get to the end of this month. Once I knock this one thing out, I'll feel better. And what I find, what I have found, I say this to my shame. I'm the pastor of a faith church, and I have found myself waking up and thinking, when was the last time I spoke to this in faith? When was the last time I actively, on purpose, out loud, exercised the authority of the believer? We can't stop doing that. And we can't, we cannot afford, let let me do this part now. (laughs) There's a message that I wrote a number of years ago called The God of All Flesh, and it's one of my favorites. It's one of my favorites of mine, and I'm my favorite preacher, so it's one of my all-time favorite messages. Uh, no, I, I find myself returning to it in one way or another uh, every couple of years, and I think I preached a version of it in the last year, so I'm not going to re-preach the whole thing now. I'm just going to refer to it. But you remember when David faced Goliath? It's one of those obscure passages that unless you're a Bible scholar, you don't know what I'm talking about, but there was this shepherd boy who went up against a giant in battle, and the giant's name was Goliath. And uh, he goes out to see his brothers on the battlefield, deliver some food. And while he's there, he sees this Philistine champion come out. And he'd been coming out for 40 days, I think. Came out, he says, Give me a, bring me a man to fight. This guy's almost 10 feet tall. He's huge. Talks about the weight of his weapons. And there's not a single guy who is his physical match. And he knows it. But he's saying, tell you what, just bring one guy out to fight me. I'll fight any one of you. And if he defeats me, we'll be your servants. And if I defeat him, uh, you'll be our servants. Come on, come on. Who, who, why, uh, everybody afraid of me? And King Saul, who's the tallest guy in his army, but he's, he's nothing compared to Goliath. He's shaking in his boots. The whole army's shaking in their boots. But David goes out there and he hears this. And he says, uh, what's the deal with this guy? And he hears him. I was just, there's the setup. Let me read this. You can read the whole thing in 1 Samuel 17. But it says in verse 25, uh, 1 Samuel 17, 25, so the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? And takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. I want you to see this because... When we read this, the way I read it for years was, and then David came up and said, say, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? He asked that question in response to what he heard these guys say. He sees the giant, he hears the threats, and then these guys say, look at this guy. Can you imagine what the king would do? Do you know what I have it on good authority? That if somebody were brave enough and faced this guy and actually killed him, the king is going to make him wealthy. He's going to be part of the king's family. He's going to get to marry the king's daughter, and his family will not have to pay taxes for the rest of their lives. And David says, wait a minute, what? I believe David... I believe this with all my heart. David already made up his mind. If nobody else goes down there, I'm going to kill this guy just because of what I just heard. Because that is nothing but an uncircumcised Philistine. Even if he's a 10-footer, 
He doesn't have a covenant with the creator of the universe. I do. You do. What are we waiting for? But since you mentioned it, what shall be done for the guy who kills him? And so they answered in the same way. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard, I'm in verse 28 now, and when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing, and these people answered him as the first ones did. Do you know what he's saying? You can't blame me for being interested in what's going on here. Hang on a second. Hey, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine? Just making sure here. Why would a man of God, why should a man of God want to or be willing to face Goliath in battle? Ideally, because it's the right thing to do. And because the man of God should know he has nothing to fear because he has a covenant with God. This is the mindset I keep seeing here, and I think it is absolutely worth emulating. I'm going to do the right thing because it's right no matter the cost and regardless of the reward. But if there's a reward, I'm going to take it. Three times the sweet singer of Israel, the man after God's own heart, wanted to hear exactly what would be done for the man who did what he was going to do anyway. Riley was applying for a job the other day. Thank God. Advertised this way. No experience necessary. $19.50 an hour. Right there, not bad for a teenager with no experience and no qualifications. $40,000 a year. But also, vision, dental, and health insurance, 401k with matching company contributions, paid vacations, etc. I'm not making that up. I need to find out if Riley gets a job first, and then I'll, then I'll send it to you. <laughs> Psalm 103, Psalm 103, beginning in verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities. Who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Once again, if he stopped in verse 3a, the first half of verse 3, it would be absolutely worth it. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless your holy name who forgives all your iniquities. Is that worth praising his name? Blessing his name? Oh, absolutely. But wait, there's more. And, I, and God loves people, and I love people who have such a deep appreciation for God's forgiveness that they just take whatever else life throws at them, not daring to ask for anything more from God than heaven. But man, do you know what I would call somebody 
who went out to that job interview and said, thank you, $19.50 an hour? For me, I'm not qualified. I've done nothing to, to, to be worthy of that kind of salary. I'll take it. I'll take it. Don't worry about that other stuff. Keep the insurance. Keep the 401k. Keep the vacation. You know what I'd call that person? A fool. In the case of Psalm 103, I might even call them defiant because I read that not just as an encouragement, but as a command. Don't you forget any of his benefits. For one thing, God says, when I saved you, I saved you because I love you and I want you in heaven with me forever, but I also saved you for a purpose. I've got stuff for you to do, and you can't do it without all this other stuff I provided you. That's why I've healed all your diseases, right? That's why I've redeemed your life from the pit. That's why I fill your mouth with good things. You know what that part is? That's abundance. That's the sweetness of life. That's the pleasure of life. We were created for that. We were created with a need for that, so God provides it abundantly so that we can undistractedly do everything he's called us to do. If we see that we are not walking in, experiencing the healing, the protection, the sweetness of life, we need to contend for those things. Why? Because the spiritual reality is that in Christ's presence, and where is Christ? Talked about this Wednesday night, didn't we? He is seated at the right hand of God with all things under his feet. There, in Christ, there is no sickness, no lack, no depression, no anxiety, no condemnation, no anything that comes and tries to steal from us, kill us, or destroy us. Those things are not in Christ. And where are we? In Christ, seated with him in heavenly places with all things under our feet. So if we are not, if, these, if this is not our manifest reality, we need to be fighting to make it our manifest reality. We still have these remnants, these vestigial remains of the sin that's in our members, and our flesh will in some fashion continue to wage war with our inner man, our spirit. But as we renew our minds to the reality of who we are and whose we are, we will walk in victory. Now, very quickly, I haven't preached a long sermon in a while, at least I don't think so. And, but I'm getting close to, to wrapping this up. There, <laughs> the devil is real. There really are evil spirits. And he is actively trying to kill us, to steal from us and to destroy us. The trick sometimes is, as I mentioned near the, near the beginning of this, we don't want to, I remember, listen, I lived through very enthusiastically the satanic panic of the 80s, where everything was a de demon. It got crazy. It got ridiculous. People believed all sorts of made-up stuff because it was salacious. It was exciting. But it was also a little bit of blame-shifting there. It's easy to excuse anything if it's like, well, I'm just under attack by a legion of demons. You would do the same thing. And I think the pendulum has perhaps swung too far the other way, but is now starting to swing back. We don't want to swing back into the satanic panic of the 80s. 
But we do need to recognize that some manifestations of evil are manifestations of demonic activity. People are still demonized out there. And one of the things, when we talk about the gifts of the Spirit, the easiest things for me to talk about when we uh, talk about being a charismatic church, full gospel church, word of faith church, when we look at the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, yeah, let's get everybody praying in tongues because everybody can and should pray in tongues. Let's make room for prophecy. We had a word of prophecy today. And did you hear that? The river's always flowing. God's going to rivers. All rivers flow to the sea. Rivers go one direction. And the direction uh, that we see it going, it's like, like, we, like we just heard you say not too long ago. I've read the end of the book. God wins. We know how this is going to end up. The question is, God is moving this direction. God has his plans. Are you going to be a part of it or not? That's your decision. Get in that river. So, we, we, we're heading this direction. Where was I going? Yeah. So, the, the, the reality of, of demons is a thing. And we're talking about the gifts of the Spirit. So there's a place for prophecy, place for tongues. That's where I was going. Interpretation. Uh, miracles, healings. All these things are great. And I've found, at least in my mind, if, if there's a gift that gets short shrift, it's discerning of spirits. Discerning of spirits. And we need that. If we're going to decide, if I've got a particular, particular battle, if I'm ministering to somebody who is struggling, manifesting certain behaviors, I need to know. Because there, guess what? There really is such a thing as chemical imbalances. I'm not going to cast a demon out of you because your blood sugar's off, because your pancreas is acting right, uh, acting wrong, right? Organs, they have issues. And, and I'm, I'm, obviously healing from God is the best, but I would never condemn you for taking your heart medicine, your blood medicine. Why would I condemn you for taking your brain medicine? That organ can go crazy. It can, can go crazy. That's a wrong way to put it. That organ can, can be off, can have issues, as just, as, just like any other organ can. We stand against them and believe for healing. But sometimes it's not that. Sometimes it's a spirit. Now, I can, and it's a different way to pray. Brother Hagen talked about that in a healing line. I'm praying for healing of somebody's headache when the Lord showed me a demon sitting on the guy's shoulder squeezing his head. And then I began to speak deliverance instead of healing. We need the discerning of spirits operating in our midst and in our, li- in our home lives too, right? So that, that was something, we'll probably pursue that in the near future, but uh, just, just as a Stir you up by way of reminder. Now, still, even at that, while we cannot ignore the activity of the enemy, flesh is mostly what we deal with. It's certainly most of what we deal with on a day-to-day basis. Just don't forget who you are. Don't forget where you're seated. We are not supposed to be begging God for deliverance. We're supposed to be rejoicing in the deliverance he has promised and provided. Why doesn't it work more often? Why doesn't it work faster? I don't know. In the words of a wise man, and see if you can tell me who the uh, wise man was who said this many, many moons ago. I cannot be defeated, and I will not quit. Pastor Hagen. I hate to see a fighter go down, but I appreciate it when a fighter goes down fighting. I'm going to continue to contend for the faith. I'm going to continue to contend for everything God has promised me. Just remember... It's not about you shouting louder. It's not about you demonstrating your faith to the world. It's about being convinced that God is for you and withholds nothing from you. 
He delights in being a God of superabundance. One more scripture and I close. Praise and worship team, come on up here. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I'm in 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 3. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. And, though, and through these, you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. All things pertaining to life and godliness. All things. Partakers of the divine nature. If we are that, we have all of God's promises not just heaven when we die. But there must be, we have got to get back in the habit, or if you've never been there, get in the habit of making an immediate response. When a circumstance comes, you find yourself facing a circumstance, fighting a battle, struggling, you remind yourself immediately who you are, whose you are. You remind your circumstances. Remind your circumstance, yeah, it's called speaking to the mountain. You remind yourself, you remind your circumstance, and anybody that, and you remind the devil who you are in Christ. Stand up with me. One last thing. This is all such great news when you see how much he has put at our disposal. And I feel like I've just scratched the surface. But all these great and precious promises, all these Again, all, all these resources. All things pertaining to life and godliness. Partaking of the divine nature. That just sounds, sounds almost new agey if you're, not, if you're not sure who the divine nature is. Partaker of the nature of God himself. Good news is those are great promises. They're precious promises. They're exceedingly great and precious promises. The bad news is they're not for everyone. <gasps> what? Still in 2 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 1. To those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. All the things that follow are only written to those who have obtained like and precious faith. Have you? What do I mean? I mean, have you received the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you confessed with your mouth the Lord Jesus? Do you believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead? Have you actively, personally, individually, at a moment, trusted him for the salvation that is your only hope of being in Christ? All of the things, all of this victory, all of this ability to fight, all of this equipment is only for those who are in Christ. So another way of putting it is, are you in Christ? Have you made that decision? Sin can't keep you from God because sin has been dealt with. But you've got to look at the cross and say, that was for me. I can't overcome my own sin. Jesus did it for me. Do you need to make that confession today? If you've made that confession do you need to recommit? Do you need to wake up and say, man, I prayed a prayer when I was a kid, and I've always known I was saved. 
But man, I've just, all I've been doing for the last week, for the last month, for the last 10 years is just coasting along, trying to get along, hoping things turn out okay. And the only reason I can sleep at night is at least I'm going to heaven. God's got more for you. And maybe you need to stand up and say, God, thank you for loving me up to this moment. Thank you for sticking with me. I am ready to go all in. I'm ready to jump in that river and go the direction that you are taking human history. I want to be a part of your plan for my life, not just mine. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.